Hi, everyone. Welcome back to RPG R&D. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jess Geyer. I am a TTRPG designer, GM, one half of Wannabe Games, and I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Hello, I'm Craig Campbell, and I'm the owner of Nerd Burger Games, and we have a guest this week who is Sean Jaffe. Sean, hi. Hi, guys. How's it going? Hi, Sean. Thanks for coming. Yeah, of course. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I am Sean Jaffe. I am the co-creator of Rememorex and uh, RPG Nasty, um, which I happen to have lying right here. Um, I've been making and running role-playing games. Oh, that's painful since probably the Reagan administration. Try not to think (laughs) about that. Um, but I guess it came in handy with Rememorex there. Um, so, uh, yeah, and uh, I've, uh, I've been involved um, with live action role playing games. I've worked on video games. Uh, I worked for Warner Brothers for a while, uh, but I sort of settled down um, with uh, with some local uh, geniuses here in Jersey City to form Nerdy City, which is like a, a game design collective. And we're uh, we're doing a lot of like kind of stuff in like the uh you know the retro uh uh nostalgia space so you know starting with rememorex but like our big project right now like literally what i was doing before i showed up was command droids which is our uh transforming robots game so that's <laughs> that's coming soon that sounds like a lot of fun that sounds really cool you said nerdy city yep that's awesome yeah i've seen rememorex i think i might actually have a copy of it on my bookshelf well thank you yeah, I uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> well, then thanks. Uh, Craig, what are we doing today on the podcast? Uh, we're talking about game stuff. <laughs> yeah, as always, we talk about game stuff, although sometimes we do talk about math and sometimes we talk about other weird things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, this week we're, uh, you know, as always, jamming topic and a game design topic. And we're going to start uh, with kind of the jamming topic and talk a little bit about. Um, from a GM's perspective, the idea of GMs creating the entire world uh, versus collaborative world building. Um, and this, of course, you know, this plays a bit into the idea that you could also run a game where um, the game itself has a lot of lore and setting. Um, but for games where you don't have a ton of that and you're not drawing upon that, even people who play like, oh, we're in the Forgotten Realms, but they'll invent all sorts of things in the Forgotten Realms. Um, They'll just use the Pantheon and a few of the benchmark cities and things like that. So, um, you know, even with uh, settings where there's a a lot of information provided, there's always the opportunity to generate all sorts of things yourself and uh, just talk about approaches um, to those uh, two um kind of ways of doing things where you're the gm is kind of generating it all or where you're getting the players involved and having them help kind of create so what have you what have you been your experiences both of you with um that as far as gming i know the one that gets a little um play with uh people online a little bit is that there's because there's players that just aren't used to or aren't familiar or aren't comfortable with like generating much on their own they just they, they would like to stay with their character play their character maybe they've got a history of background they you know invent a hometown <laughs> as part of that but they don't get into a great deal but uh what have, right. what have you guys run into yeah when i started playing uh, my first ever game was 
three, five D and I was in middle school and I didn't know that pre-made adventures were a thing. So I just kind of always assumed that people just made up their own stuff and went on with it. And it wasn't until 4E came out that I really realized like, oh, there's a lot of people playing in already set worlds where the GM's not creating anything. And it wasn't until in the last five years or so that I started getting into the more collaborative world building aspect. Um, I don't think that I've ever run a, like a, a set campaign or a set setting by the book ever I don't know if anyone necessarily has I don't I I, I feel like I, I guess I've done a little bit when it comes to like Adventurers League just specifically talking about D&D but I, I like taking inspiration from a lot of those things and I really like um, for example I really like Pathfinder's um, adventure paths a lot I like their pantheon and how they do things um, and I've taken a lot of inspiration from that. I like to buy books with a lot of setting in them. And then I just, you know, I cut it apart like Dr. Frankenstein and just make my own little monster. What about you, Sean? So uh, I am one of the very, very rare, very rare uh, people um, that like is involved in like publishing and in, you know, in the industry as much as that's a thing um that didn't start with dungeons and dragons um wow. my brother and i actually started with uh the original teenage mutant ninja turtles role-playing game by palladium way back in like 88 89 <laughs> that's awesome um and yeah i was in the same boat where i was like uh, i guess i just make everything up you know and i sort of like built it kind of on like what i knew from the comics but it was like everything was just getting started i think it was one of like the, the literal first things that was licensed out for that uh and then like we became like these hardcore palladium kids which i know is like there's a whole <laughs> lot of stuff associated with that and, you know, i kind of had this like weird thing with it and like occasionally we'll go back and be like you want to play rifts just for the sake of doing it we <laughs> We'll do two or three of them and like for rifts like i liked rifts but i it didn't get as big as i wanted it to get um because you know i'm like a 12 year old boy and i'm like oh let's go nuts uh so my brother and i like started collaborating with our friends mark and gideon we created this like entire universe where like rifts happened on a galactic scale and it really became like it's an entirely new game. And it's this thing that eventually we're going to put together at some point. Um, but that was something that we sort of put together uh, uh, out of the gate. And I was running that pretty early on. So it was like, you know, Rifts meets Star Wars, which is absurdly over the top. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, when when we started working on Rememorex, which is a game that is set in the suburban 80s um it's just a regular town um and uh the first town we created um was a place called clearfield delaware i specifically stuck it in delaware because nothing happens in delaware um, <laughs> sorry to all of our delawareans out there <laughs> i'm sure i'm wrong about that but Delo like at the time Del delaware I'm, I'm not even sure <laughs> yeah Delawarian, Delawites. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we uh, we set it there and like, you know, we just created this like little suburban town that was supposed to be like very kind of sleepy and bucolic and boring. 
And so there were different things that happened like as, and they wound up in the book, actually. Like one of my favorite things that wound up in the book was uh, an off joke that one of the players made where they were like, I'm looking for a telephone to make a call. Cause like, that's part of the reason I love setting games in that time period is there's those cell phones, which are so hard to work around. Right. Um, and one of the other players is like, yeah, you're having a hard time in front of the old telephone, uh, abandoned telephone factory. <laughs> and that was the, the throwaway joke. And then somehow they kept coming back to the old abandoned <laughs> telephone factory. So it's in the book <laughs> that there is an old abandoned telephone factory in Gossetville, Delaware. Um, cause it actually wound up playing like kind of a pivotal role in the game, uh, that like, you know, <laughs> this was like a place they could go and hide out and hide stuff. And, you know, like weird things would happen at the old telephone factory. Um, and, uh, so, you know, the Rememorex is, um, something in, in, you know, the radical shadows universe of Rememorex is something that uses that very familiar system so like that's the thing that i think is helpful is like you can get your players more on board with world building if it's a world that they understand you know so if you're like it's delaware right they can be like okay (laughs) there's probably a factory or there might be like some train tracks here we're going to go down to the ravine where do the kids hang out i don't know you tell me uh the gas station okay we're all going to go to the gas station steal candy and hang out in the parking lot uh but if you're like you know it's set on a on a a uh, a, a gas giant in the betel juice system and you know like people use poems for money like then it's a lot harder for people to sort of throw stuff in there because they're not sure where you're at right you're sure at but yeah i find like with with more grounded worlds i get a lot more like the players being like i'm just going to go to this because it probably is there and i'm like just tell me about that thing like because that frankly is taking some of the heat off of me to come up with it you know like mm-hmm. if, if i'm working all this stuff out the less i have to come up with like first of all it means that i don't have to come up with it which i enjoy and second and i think this is very valuable especially in any games with any sort of horror element they've already got an emotional bond with that place it feels safe mm-hmm. so you can make it scarier by threatening that place mm-hmm. yeah i'm running a game now where they found like a uh uh, an old um, clubhouse that some of the kids had like when they were younger and like that's become their go-to but like I can say like you know you, you don't know what's watching that clubhouse you don't know what it's near you know so I can I can introduce stuff into that which by leaving it alone for three or four sessions when something does come there it gets a lot scarier yeah that's a really like good springboard for that collaborative storytelling in the world building too is yeah, they kind of set it up like it's their clubhouse, it's their place. But like you said, the stuff that's happening around it, that's not theirs. That's the scary world out there. I like right. that. That's a that's a really good like it, the 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 uh, the abandoned telephone factory came, you said, like kind of out of a joke that just kind of took on a life of its own. But um, that could be you, I mean, a GM could use that as a strategy where you don't necessarily ask the question. You don't ask players to create things. But when they do offhandedly generate the just even the basics of something, then you can introduce that thing later. And they and will let, do that. They will. Yeah. Do that. And, and then and then, oh, yeah. you know, just let 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 it take on a life of its own. And, and you know, you can inject a little bit of uh, what you want to have in it for the purposes of your story, the mood, the tone of the game. Um, 
and then you know once the players are kind of comfortable you've like okay though they made up this thing without really realizing it and now i've used it a little bit then you can start asking questions like well you know like well what's in that back room like do you have any idea what's in that back room um that's locked all you know that's always locked um with the strange hum coming from inside right yeah um exactly you invent that and then they tell you what the hum is and you know it, 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 it can go like that rather than it being an upfront sort of boom i'm going to ask you a question like um, kind of out of the blue, which is something I've done a fair bit. Um, and that's something that comes up with, with good, strong hands with when I'm running that game, my game, um, because the, the game is built on the idea of the players helping to generate the world that they're about to save. Um, and like you said, Sean, it's the, you know, it gets them invested. Like if you can get the players generating some part of the world, it helps that become more important to them. And there, there are whole games that are centered around building up a world. There's the Quiet Year, uh, oh, which yeah. is just setting up a world. And when, when you have a stake in something, like in the creation of something at that fundamental level, and that you actually feel like, oh, it was mine back then. I can continue building on it now in this game kind of as we go. It doesn't just belong to the GM. Um, it, you don't have to necessarily go through a whole game of making a world to do that, but you can also, as a GM, you can aid this by asking specific questions of your players, um, kind of like how a lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse games have links, like where the characters go around the table and they say, um, I, I have this connection with you due to this, or like, here's how we met, or here's why we're enemies. Uh, you can do that with the world too. I've had a lot of success of asking like my players sometimes like really really broad questions like what is there and what isn't there everyone gets to choose one thing that is and one thing that isn't there um but you can also say like uh what was your favorite place where where did you grow up what was the landmark in your town uh who was the mayor and why why did you prank him every sunday uh stuff like that i don't i'm i'm stuck on pranks today i mentioned this earlier <laughs> when we recorded i was talking about pranks and but yeah, there, just as a GM, you can facilitate that world building by showing them by by directly asking them, like, what do you want in here? It's you can help, too. And then you can participate in that process as well with the with the story building. And something that I've always noticed and I I bring up quite regularly when we talk about this sort of thing is that when you do when the players ask a question about, you know, whether, whether this or that is present or when you put them in the position of being able to generate something, um, they're probably going to ask a question about or generate something that they want to interact with in some way. They're not just necessarily, right. it's, unli it's unlikely that they're just going to, you know, throw an off the cuff, this or that, yeah. um, out at you, they're going to throw something out that they personally find interesting. And so it, it gives you something to jump off of. And it's like, they're, they're going to be immediately interested in like, you know, the, you're, running a horror game and you, you know, present the question at the beginning of, you know, well, what's, what's, what does the, uh, there's a haunted house in town, the thing, you know, the house that everybody, that every kid can thinks is haunted. What's the story. And just, you know, like who, who lived there? Why is it haunted? And just you, and you can, you can do it in pieces. It doesn't have to be like, you know, not one player has to come up with the whole story. You can ask, you know, like person says like, it's old, old, you know, um, old Mrs. Peabody right. <laughs> died in the house 20, you know, 30 years ago. And they say, <laughs> you go to someone else, you go to the rest of the group and say, okay, well, what did, you know, what, what was Miss, Mrs. Peabody known for? Um, you know, she had a billion cats <laughs> right. taking cliches, but you know, so suddenly you've got like a house full of haunted cat, you know, a haunted house full of 
cat cat ghosts um that the players have had like the slightest bit in helping to develop and they'll you know be tickled by the the idea that like okay now i now i have to deal with this thing and it's it's also partly my fault because i helped to come <laughs> up with it but it's it's you know yeah like you said it, they're invested in it yeah. When when we put together RPG Nasty, um, it, it originally uh, came from watching a uh, um, a documentary about the video nasties, which uh, I think it's just called Video Nasty. I strongly recommend it. Uh, my my girlfriend uh, Gia came up with the idea of you know taking these classic horror tropes and making it something. So what we wanted to do was something that was like you know I've seen so many horror games that are like based on the idea of you know oh it's a dark mirror on the psyche and all that and like i was like you know like i want to go to like something where it's just this is just like dumb schlocky vhs horror you know <laughs> and you could like you know the boom is falling into the shot that kind of thing you know <laughs> um i love those I, I love those sorts of movies so uh uh one of the things that we came up with was like you know like all of those sort of are based on you being the victim because like it's it's a hard thing to get around right you're either the killer which gets really exploitative really fast or you're the victim which isn't much fun mm -hmm. so the way we decided to work around that is that everybody submits uh like on a secret ballot one thing about the killer so you've all created the killer together and ah. then you create victim characters that you kind of don't like um <laughs> and uh you know and there's also like a whole thing about like you know like you know, the, you, you want to get the stuff out of the way that isn't fun because, you know, it's based off of like the horror movies of like the late 70s. So there's a lot of stuff that was not OK. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, what we did is like you can put down a thing that's like, OK, I don't want to deal with, you know, violence against children or whatever, because, I mean, those were really there was nothing off limits in those. Uh, and you could say, you know, that. But it's not fun to say what you don't want to play. So if you put something down like that, you can also put something down like, I do want to see a guy's eyeball explode or something like that. <laughs> so you can sort of pull it back to the fun part of like the gross horror movie. Um, but there's, there's this very collaborative sense of it. And like, really like whenever I'm running it, it's kind of a, a, a weight off my shoulders because like everything I'm getting is coming in from the players. And all I have to do is just put it together where like, I'm like, okay, what do people want? They want to see, uh, somebody pecked to death by birds. They want to, you know, like somebody's going to get uh, burned to death. And like, okay, the the killer uh, runs a farm. All right, um, the game will be fried chicken themed. You guys are all in a bus, and you pull over at a fried chicken restaurant, and the killer is going to turn everybody into fried chicken buckets. I think we we did the ten piece bucket of death as one of, them. and that's the thing is the, the last person alive gets to name the film. Oh, that's. Um, mm -hmm. So I got a little thing, but like that collaborative element, like it doesn't need to just be the world. You can also right. have like a weird collaborative element where like you can have people sort of contribute stuff to your villains even. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit tougher. Um, and, you know, obviously it's it's a lot easier if you're playing for laughs. Uh, but there are certain aspects that you can take, you know, when you get your character's background, it always makes more sense to sort of weave them in there and be like, OK, you don't know who your father is. All right. I do. Yeah, like that exactly. Kind of <laughs> I love that. You yeah. when when they say they don't know who their father is, that means they want you. They want you oh, to take yeah. that and exploit it. That's that's what everyone does. Oh, I was uh, I, I stole this this 
item from some random house and you don't fill in the details, you know I'm going to fill in those details for you later. And you know it's going to be bad for your character because that creates that lovely drama. And that's a form of world building too. It's not just like the history of your world. It's not Tolkien-esque uh, long form poetry all the time sometimes it is like the the character relationships um currently the present day is also the world building what your characters are doing every day in in your story is also part of that world building i think uh i mean it's it's hard on on the part of both the gm and the players because as a gm you want to make sure that your players are having fun and you don't want your your world to feel empty and stupid you you want you want your players to think your world is cool. And as players, I feel like a lot of times, like you don't want to step on the GM's toes. You don't want to take right. away from their thing. Cause you know, their, their whole thing is that they're playing the world and you don't want to take away their agency at the same time. So you, you kind of have to open that dialogue and, and, you know, find that. I'm always worried about people being afraid to like throw stuff in there. And I'm yeah. like, Oh, give me stuff to Please. where you want in there. The more I can play with, um, I I think there are plenty of players that aren't interested in that. And there are plenty of GMs who they, their thing is just like, I've got a lot of time outside the game <laughs> and you know, I I'm going to create all this. Stuff. They love creating all this stuff. And if you've got players that are just, you know, they, they want to take a ride through that world with the GM. Um, so if you are going to, and that's great. And you know, that like when I was younger, that was like, I created like crazy. I was like nothing but generating stuff. I was pulling ideas from different places, pulling stuff from media, from other adventures. Um, and, uh, you know, quite frankly, I just don't have the time so much for that anymore, which is part of the reason I actually design games where there's a little more collaborative uh, storytelling, but as long as the players understand, um, that there's going to be a bit of that. And they don't all have to necessarily take part in equal measure because um, some players you know, may not have a lot to offer very often. Some people are just, you know, they'll throw stuff out constantly. Like there's no, there's no race. There's no prize for who provides the most, you know, material for the GM to, to run with. Um, but like you said too, yeah, like knowing what the, the baseline is getting back. That was something that you mentioned that I think is important, um, Sean, which is, like if, if you know it's, you know, small town 80s nostalgia, you give people a background, a, a, a backdrop against which to develop things. So they know yeah, what you can put in with. stuff that they would know is there. Like, like you know, if, if I run good, strong hands, I'm telling people like, you remember, this is like labyrinth and willow and the never ending story. Mm. Um, so like anything you create should be you know, like fantasy and kind of whimsical, but also has like this weird darkness to it. Um and you can, you know, as long as, you know, yeah, I mean, at the beginning of a game session, um, especially if it's a convention game, make it, you know, get that up front, kind of tell them, like, let the players know that, like, I'm going to be asking you for stuff here and there. And people can, you can just blur stuff out, feel free, like, give, give them, give them the freedom and let, and let them know what the, uh, what the baseline is so that they know what to offer. Uh, yeah, you, the convention games can be difficult with that and, and getting that buy-in from, from the players there. It's usually just a one-shot. I've seen and I've, I've, I've run some con games where, you know, you had pre-gen characters and on, that, on the back of the character sheet was a little bit of background information about you that connects you to the world so you feel like you have a personal stake as well as how you feel about the other characters at the table. So when you started playing, you even though these were pre-made characters and you had no idea what the world was and you're trying to learn a new system, 
you at least felt grounded in knowing like, yes, I know this thing about this world and this is how I feel about it. And I, I really, I like playing games like that. Although I, I don't mind making my own characters for con games, but I like getting the pre-made ones from, from the GMs there at the table. So I can, you know, just kind of get into it instead of have to worry about, does this fit in with the rest of the crew? We've got one mechanic in Rememorex that's actually in all of our games called uh, Tracking Error, where if your character is not in a scene, you can throw stuff into that scene. Oh. Um, and uh, those have created a lot of weird character changes uh, that come from the players. Um, one of the first ones that I'm remembering is there was one part in one of the games where one of the characters was like pulled aside and is parents are like well we need to talk to you uh uh ken because and i was just gonna have it be like i can i think they had found like a weapon under his bed that he had like gotten from a previous adventure they'd be like what are you doing with a gun young man <laughs> right <laughs> and so that was gonna be what they were talking about and one of the other players is like we need to talk to you tracking error you're adopted <laughs> <laughs> So suddenly that nice. character is a draft. And I'm like, oh, that is not the conversation I was planning on having. All right, you're adopted. Like that just came out. And so that became this whole giant thing. Um, but there was another one that was uh in in that same game, actually, where there was a, a character uh who threw a tracking error. And it's like the phone rings. It's Uncle Bobby. And so the character, like, and, and the nice thing about a tracking error is if I think it's going to slow things down too much, I can just move past it, right? So it can be like, I'm, I will never say no to anything in a tracking error. So it always happens, but, you know, you can sort of pivot out of it. So literally what I had happen was uh, the character's dad picks it up, Uncle Bobby, click and moves on. But that was enough to set up that, like, Uncle Bobby became this massively important character down the line. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like this weird Vietnam veteran that knew about MK Ultra and all this. And like they all <laughs> thought he was this this crazy conspiracy theory guy, but actually knew actually what was going on. Um, so yeah, I love having that. And it's harder to convey that in con game. But the beauty of like having a mech a mechanic like that is the first time somebody, you know, gets the courage to throw one of those, then they see what they can do, and then more and more it'll happen. Uh, yeah, that's something we've talked about here on the, on the podcast a few times is like that it, if, if players are hesitant about something, all it takes is the first person right. right, to kind of take the jump in and everybody goes, oh, okay, I, that person did the thing that I was a little wary about. And then we didn't all, you know, the characters didn't all die and it didn't ruin the game or <laughs> it didn't bring anything to a grinding halt or, you know, nothing bad came out of it. It was just a neat little thing that happened. Um, and then so they, they feel a little more confident with it. Yeah. yeah, modeling behaviors, basically. Fancy schmancy words, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. And then again, on the uh, you know, on the flip side, um, if you uh, if you have um, a lot of time, um, by all means, create, create, create. Um, you've got players that want to take that ride through your world, and you can combine these too. You can like take those little tidbits that come up, and then do a lot of creation yourself, and just integrate some of those tidbits that the players throw out there. Like, you know, Sean could have had his small town in Delaware have all this stuff that's all created that he's generating even beyond the game scope mm -hmm. um, just for the campaign, but then also integrate the, uh, the telephone factory. Right. Yeah. Um, 
like, you know, after it's, after it's popped up three or four times as a joke, then like in session number eight, like they have to go to it. Like it's become a real thing and everybody goes, wow. That was literally exactly how it happened. They they realized that like somebody threw that out there. And then like uh, a, a few games later, they realized that the entity that they were dealing with was primarily electronic and that this could be how it would get out into the world. So they had to shut it down, uh, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, the second season, I think it was, of The Adventure Zone, which is the, the McElroy Brothers podcast, um, and how they they filmed, well, they filmed, they set there that adventure in a small Appalachian town in West Virginia, um, in, in a semi-real place, it's this radio dead zone that exists out there. Um, and just people off, I think, I don't remember who said it, but someone offhand mentioned a, a defunct water park. Uh, and that ended up That's becoming good. like the showdown place. And like, just like the, the, don't be afraid to build on those things and don't be afraid as a player to do it. And if you are one of those GMs that you have that setting in mind, you have, like, you know, what's there, you've, you've, you've created all these stores, your players are, you know, they're there with you too. Don't, don't be a hard ass and tell them no, (laughs) if it, if it could work, you can, you can yes. And them. Um, Yeah. It's, that's the thing you pivot it to like where you need it to be. Right. You can shift it too. like if you we were talking about we've we've talked about this sort of thing, too, where if you've got this whole world set up and you've got this really like there's there's a location and there's really important things that are supposed to happen there. And it's at a particular location that you have not introduced yet. And then the characters generate this really interesting idea for a location. Just take all that cool stuff. Yeah. And put it in that location. And then that that will you know, you won't have wasted anything that you've gone through other than to be like, oh, it's not it's going to be at the water park, not at the telephone factory. That's I mean, (laughs) that's a great strategy to keep in your GM's toolbox is to take that place that they didn't go to with all the signs pointing at it and put it in the weird place that they got sidetracked to. That's okay, And they won't know. Yeah. Uh, They won't know I always see that like the, the the memes about like, you know, you've you spent so much time working on your NPC who's like this awesome guy at the bar and like a hooded cloak and everybody's like talking to the goblin. <laughs> and I always am like, just make the goblin the awesome guy then. Like yeah. I don't <laughs> Yeah, same it, same deal. Yeah. Seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, and it also helps you avoid some of those weird cliches. Mm. <laughs> now you <laughs> When the when the weird goblin waiter at the end turns out to be the mastermind, yeah, That's good <laughs> because stuff. The, because the players just can't stop talking to the goblin. <laughs> we mentioned a couple times about some of the things you can do as a game designer to encourage this this storytelling. Um, and our our second topic is about like how much setting do you add in as a game designer? And I think that's part of that conversation like where are where are you guys at on that um well looking at the games that i've designed it's been it's been all over the place that there i've got games where there's quite a lot of setting that's been developed um and then there's games where um just there's a bit of it and then it's mostly just making sure the players know what the game is kind of about and they're going to help collaborate and generate some of that um and usually for me it's just this is just an approach is that if the if the setting is something that's going to likely be unfamiliar uh 
or is going to be a twist that might take a little use getting used to um it's probably useful to generate a fair amount of setting so at the very least the gm has something to work from when they're running they can always create and do on their own and they can get collaboration but you give them enough like i mean capers is set in the 1920s you know once you get past lucky luciano and al capone there's and flappers and tommy guns that's kind of like the average person is like all right that's my 1920s <laughs> and but no alcohol lot <laughs> and no alcohol and there's but there's a lot more to it than that so i i you know went into a fair bit of detail on new york city and and chicago and atlantic city and a few other cities um and just general information like a whole little section about like you know these are these are the techno you know these are the new inventions like these are the things that people are just now starting to use and this is what people are dressing like and these are the sports figures that are important these are the movies that have just come out like everything to kind of set the set the the place um, because people are going to look at the twenties and like, you know, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, um, uh, because I'm not a, a fine historian by any means, but like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's what happened in my lifetime, there's medieval times, and then there's everything in between. You know? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Like, so it's the twenties, well, you know, it's the twenties. So that means like Babe Ruth's around. Okay. Well, you know, what that means, Joe DiMaggio. No, not so much to, uh, is you know, is uh, some like it hot? Has that come out yet? Like, no, no, that's that's not for like, way later. <laughs> 25 more years, 30 years. Um, you know, so, um, you know, is there like, and I've had that run, I, I ran into that with, you know, run, running a game of deadlines back in the day, ran deadlines and said, you know, okay, well, um, brought up the telephone and they said the telephone. I was like, yeah, 1876. <laughs> sure. There's telephones. Not many people have them, but they're there. Um, you know, so it's, it's, like that the setting is worth kind of developing when when you don't really you know like when the players aren't going to know or the gm isn't going to know enough about it or when um, the setting is important like a lot of victorian era games the setting and the etiquette and the dress and that can be important um yeah, so it becomes or, the style of the right. game too um and then like when murder with murders and acquisitions is like okay well everybody knows the joke of corporate america um, like, you know, what, what, what's, what's, what, what corporate America can be like in like a humorous setting. Like you've seen office space, you've seen, um, Archer, you know, you've seen comedic kind of things said in office, um, situations and office settings. But, you know, I went ahead and, you know, like I, we created corp in the game, we created corporations that each kind of have their own thing. There's like, here's one that's kind of military industrial. And here's one that's like, they're clearly using like psychotropic drugs to keep their employees <laughs> uh, productive and, and in line. And, um, you know, there's just a few different, you know, variations. So like, and that was mostly like, in that case, I created multiple, you know, and developed multiple companies so that it wouldn't just become the static, like, oh, everybody's just playing in the world of office space. And it just becomes office space jokes over and over, which is, don't get me wrong. I love office space. Um, definitely influenced the game, but there's a lot of other weird ways you can take like, you know, goofy corporate shenanigans. Um, and so, yeah, just giving them that to work from. Um, and then, you know, like, well, once you get into like a fantasy game, like that can very quickly, uh, very easily become like, you know, especially if it's like a epic kind of scope game, like it almost demands 
a lot of setting because you're, you're, you're creating this like really epic world. It's got a whole history of its own. That's nothing like earth. I've run into that exact same problem with the historical stuff. And I think people are even more reticent to get it wrong because the eighties were so recent. So I've I've wound up in this weird place where I like, I just got used to people being like, Oh, I don't know. Like I can't, uh, the eighties. That's so weird. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're, you're running a game set in 1272 right now. Like that's definitely weirder. (laughs) Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's because like people were alive then. And like, I, I, I try to convey, like, I'm not going to like snap at you if you're like, oh yeah, like the, the Beatles are going to play like now. I- <laughs> my characters, my character goes home to watch Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Well, Fresh Prince was a nineties show. Like the only thing I keep like, you. like the only thing I really have to harp on in, in is like, they're like, Oh, I've got a cell phone. It's the size of a brick. Like, no, (laughs) nobody had those. My dad was a scientist, like working for NASA at the time. He didn't have one of those. Nobody had those. Those are not a thing. But outside of that, like, you know, just keeping the cell phones out of people's hands. I'm like, I can work with whatever, you know, like if you're like, oh, yeah, it's uh, 1981 and we're going to all go see Jurassic Park. It's like, well, not really, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to stick on that unless it's like a major plot point. Right. Um, and it's gotten to this weird place where like some people like drill down and they're like, okay, so it's March of 1986. So <laughs> Top Gun hasn't come out yet. Like, whoa, dial back, back to the future is still in theaters because it was in theaters for a year. <laughs> the weirdest part of that is that uh, like what we think of as being the major events of the eighties all took place in the first part of 86. That's why I chose it. Well, I'm lying. I chose 86 at first because that was the year the transformers movie came out. All of these, I mean, it works for Commandroids. Uh, but then I found out like um, Haley's comet, um, which is a huge part of Commandroids, uh, uh, and um, uh, Chernobyl and the challenger disaster. Oh, wow all were within five months of each other. And then you add in like um, the, the HBO broadcast disruption, like 86 was bonkers. So I've <laughs> really like drilled down on like that year and like very specific, like this is what it was. This was what, it, you know, uh, but again, I can, I can be flexible about that because I don't expect everybody to know exactly what was going on in 80. I mean, if you would ask me questions in 1986, about what was happening. I'd be better able to answer them now than I was then. Hmm. Mostly because I was a very small child, but still. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, put the things in your game that are going to be important that you don't want people to get wrong. Like, I kind of wish that I added more actual setting for Moonpunk. We were very, very set in light other than it was a retro-futuristic dystopian moon where everyone Mm. lived in domes. Um, (laughs) Other than that, they were kind of... Oh, and don't have... There are no actual guns because guns, when you're all living in glass domes, bad, bad very bad idea. And apart from that, eh, I kind of let things take their place because the more important thing to me designing that game was the the anti-capitalist themes um, and, and the corporations and the punks. Um, but uh, the game that I'm designing now, there's a lot more table setting um, and I'm, I'm doing that by building different factions within the world rather than places necessarily um where whereas the places are actually designed into the game for the the players to come up with and to develop and to develop their own other like building around those um 
So think as a, as, as a designer, what don't you want people to do and and design around that, um, making sure that your, your, your guardrails where, where the boundaries where you want to keep people inside or out, uh, set those up, um, at least start there. Um, and where you, how far you develop, um, that is going to become another guardrail. Like if you say this thing exists in your game, that's going to be an obstacle for them not necessarily a bad way, but that's a, you know, it's an island in the stream at that point. So uh, yeah, think, think about that as a designer. I've done a lot of settings um, for this universe uh, because we do like a bunch of different like little towns and I've had other people that'll run games in the same place. Like they're in the same United, like they could go to Clearfield from, there sit like you know my brother created a place called bushnell uh my friend cray created a place called uh uh uh, kerrigan's wake and you know these players will visit each other from these different places um and it's it's really created this this sense of like reality to it but also like this thing like i've worked on a lot of games over a lot of time um uh i worked on um the, the, the very early incarnations of the dystopia rising role-playing game uh, back when I've it was like played. I was a Liscarian. I love the game. <laughs> the, when it was like a weird, I, I, I have to imagine it was the first tabletop game to grow out of a LARP. It always seemed to me that like that always went the other way. This, this felt very backwards to me at the time that it was going from one to the other. Like that, that seemed incredibly strange. Um, and uh, like at first, you know, it was like very much based off of this LARP. So all of these LARP players would like kind of throw stuff in there that kind of filtered into the game. Mm-hmm. But as it became bigger and bigger, they were like, well, we don't want to show any favorites. So like it's entirely player generated because, you know, we've got this big thing and we don't want it to be like, oh, why does Steve get to come up with what Texas looks like? Right. Or something <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that and I don't begrudge them that. But like being this tiny little pipsqueak indie company. I love the fact that my players can throw stuff in there and be like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that's mine. The abandoned telephone factory is mine. Paul, I made that, you know, or like, you know, right. Josh could be like, I made Bushnell. And we've, we've got so many of these little towns now that we've actually started an experiment. We started up a Patreon for Nerdy City and like every two weeks or something, we put another town up and oh, I think cool. we'll do a little supplement, but like anybody that wants to put a town in there, we can just there it is that's that's another one of these weird little suburban towns it sort of generates this larger world yeah that, that's really i haven't played the the tabletop i have the tabletop game for dystopia rising and only even the larp um and you know i always i've never designed a larp before but i always wondered like okay, that's a lot of like you know world building you have to do as a as a game designer at that point because you're inviting people over to a campsite and here you are they have to pretend the, that this is the thing the difference is is like larp running like i think the big mistake a lot of people come up with when they're doing larps versus tabletop and especially when it comes to world building is larp running is not storytelling first storytelling maybe third or fourth the first thing you're doing is event planning mm-hmm that is what it is and then you know the story kind of slips in later and it's mm. it's it's really hard to balance all of those elements also because you can't pivot like you can in tabletop right right in tabletop like and this is the thing i always go to explaining this it's like you can have a car chase whenever you want 
right? <laughs> you can have a giant dragon show up because it just happens that way. But like, if you want to do something like that in a LARP, prepare to spend a lot of time and money. Uh, you can't really do a car chase in a LARP at all. No. Um, and, you know, and, and these are the sort of things that uh, you have to work around. So your world has to be designed so that it really doesn't change in the ways that tabletop games can change. There have been so many LARPs I've been to where the obvious solution to a problem is, oh, it's in there, that wooden building that's been here since 1910, <laughs> it's in there. The monster that wants to kill all of us is in there. A lighter, let's go home, right? But you can't do that. <laughs> right. In a tabletop, that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. But like, for some reason in LARP, you, can be, you can't do that. And, and the weird part is that players internalize that. Mm -hmm. So even though their characters are supposed to be like battle-hardened warriors or, or survivors of the apocalypse, nobody's got a lighter. Like, it's still part of that, like, where they've, like <laughs> they never even consider that as an option because obviously it isn't. And it kind of works its way into the foundation of that universe, which sort of ties all LARPs together. You can never burn a building down. <laughs> That's just not part of it they they burned the building down once in uh the, one of the dystopia rising games i went to except the building didn't actually burn in just flaming zombies came in and burned all of us so that's how you handle right, yeah. that <laughs> and then you rebuild it like two days later yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the next day really or, or within, that, within a half hour within that weekend at some LARP point characters if something does burn down the larp characters all suddenly become amish and they can rebuild it <laughs> in like a matter of 20 minutes got a good barn raising yes yeah <laughs> exactly the same <laughs> yeah that, that's interesting to yeah that's a really yeah like i said i've never designed a larp or anything like that i don't know if i could do that i don't know if that would be my wheelhouse but uh yeah thinking about the the things that your your table is limited to by like as a as a ttrpg designer it there's a lot you can do um, with that setting, but um, I guess one of the things you, you, you should also consider is like how much of this can take place in just your players' minds. How many other outside tools are they going to need to, to make this setting happen as well, um, which kind of ties into the mechanics. So if, you're, if your setting is like giant floating islands, um, but your mechanics are really crunchy in terms of like the distance and things. Uh, you you got to really consider how, how the setting and the mechanics blend at the same time too. Just kind of bringing it back to the tabletop realm. <laughs> yeah. Art is, is I find very important in that regard, especially the weirder the game gets, the more it's nice to be able to hold up a book and be like, it looks like this. Yeah. yeah. Art. Oh gosh. Our direction. And, <laughs> and and when you're designing all of that too, keep in mind that like when you're designing the setting, especially like when it's, if it's a, a, a world that's completely unlike anything else, you know, like if you're creating um, like, you know, what I'm, what I'm looking at right now is, is designing um, a game that is set entirely inside of a computer, you know, Tron style. Nice. So like everything in that world is going to look a certain way. I've got a very specific artist who does work that I love and is going to create some really bizarre looking stuff. Um, and, you know, it's getting named in, you know, all the locations are getting named in certain ways. 
um, the different types of, uh, of, of characters that you can play, the different types of, you know, quote unquote monsters, um, the aberrants as they are in the game are, you know, the, uh, like they, they all, it's all very specific. It's intended to generate a very specific world. And when you, when you write that in a, into a setting, you're not only providing setting and lore for the GM to use, you're instructing them in how to create new material for the game too. And that's not to say that GMs, you know, might not go and do something really kind of wacky and off the wall. That's very, very different from what you developed because that's the play style and their players are going to dig it, whatever. But, you know, a lot of GMs will, will take that as a cue. Like, you know, they've created like this, this world looks like this. It's things are named like this. This is how things function. Like if there's a, if there's a light beam, that travels from major location to major location, like they're gonna, if, when they create a new major location, you're telling them that there's gotta be a light beam that carry, you know, that travel, that takes them, you know, from, from the location they're creating to at least one other place, um, because that's how characters traverse these distances. Um, whatever, yeah, so, whatever, so, you know, whatever that is. Some games have specific rules for like tags or conditions that locations have or, or have to have um, and, that can that can reflect in the gameplay as well too so if you tell like okay every location has a a size tag a a safety tag and and some other random tag you're telling the you're telling the game master okay here is how i will do it too um giving those guidelines give the give the little steps for them that sounds incredibly rad by the way i want to i want to know more about that that's that sounds really cool um one of the things I'm I'm incorporating into that because um, the game the, the setting of the game is when the computer crashes so it's the apocalypse everything's oh, falling apart awesome. um, and the uh, so I'm I'm still I haven't quite figured it out yet but one of the things I'm going to tackle and this is for like if you're going to generate a setting that has a living quality to it that you know like some many a lot of settings are written like you know this is what this city is like this is what these planes are like here's what's in the mountains um but you can also generate you know things that might happen to different places like if this you know if this army conquers this army what happens to the world mm-hmm. um and, and and provide that as a baseline and like i've got an apocalyptic situation where like well what happens at this stage of the apocalypse in some of these different places like you know i can prescribe some of those things with like little bullet point items that the gm can use or ignore Mm -hmm. um but you're also you know like when you're when you're creating that you're also kind of telling the gm what the world looks like when it's in decline like what what happens when things break down and everything falls apart and what happens if a city falls um Mm -hmm. what's left in its place um you know that like if if the world is going to have that in it, if it's going to have, um, if that happens actively during the course of the game, or even if you have a game where um, like a fantasy game where you've got like these great cities, but then over here's the ruins of this once great city. Well, like what's, you know, what, how, how is this great city over here? And with all of its hustle and bustle and everything that's going on, what does that have in common with this ruin over here? Like there, this, this ruin was one time this great city. Or very much like it. Hey, you can do a lot of setting up. A and, there, and there can be a lot of parallels. And, 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 and yeah, you can have like, like they, you when you go to delve into the ruins, you discover that, it, you know, this is the reason it fell. And then the people go back to the city and they're like, oh, things are happening <laughs> here that are a little bit too much like what happened <laughs> over there. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Um, and and you, so when you have those ruins um, and you have you know a history to the world, you're also, again, you're kind of, teaching the gm like mm-hmm. 
you know, if there's a dragon war every 20, you know, every 200 years, describe what the last couple dragon wars were like, and then be, you know, that, that gives the GM a guideline for how to implement a dragon war. Or, you in, know, even for your campaign. own edification, even if it never gets to the players, it's nice to have that, mm-hmm. you know, so you know how it works. Or if they don't know this, why don't they? You know, like that kind of a thing. Give a, you know, you need a satisfying reason as like, okay, if there's a huge dragon war, um, I feel like I would know about it. If you don't know about it, why is that? And, you know, uh, it turns out that the dragons erase everybody's minds afterwards or something like that. They're like, oh, that's weird. We should probably look into that too. Um, I was, when we were working on Commandroids, uh, one of the things that like kind of snuck up on, on us um, was how important the home planet of these robots would be. So there's an enormous amount of world building that went into that. And then like, from that it expanded out into this entire galaxy that is essentially a toy chest of like you know this is this is where the holographic you know barbie dolls come from and this is where the uh the 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 space barbarians with laser swords come from and all you know that kind of stuff uh and how they relate to each other and and one of the things that came up was we were doing rules like we wanted to have like the the three rules uh like einstein asimov's three rules of robotics as uh an explanation as to why these robots can't reveal themselves to humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it dawned on us that like, that was a thing that like would require even more world. And this is the sort of thing that goes into design. None of this is in the books yet. It'll all come out uh, that like these, these rules have to be followed by any mechanical species. And one of the ones that we created to sort of be part of that was like a Tron like planet that was like just a giant computer world. And if you went there, you were digitized into it. Um, so I, I, that's a really cool idea. I, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like they can, fo- you know, those guys follow the rules. So their planet works. And then like, there was another like sort of like Dalek kind of planet where they didn't follow the three rules of robotic life and they all went crazy. Um, but that's one of those things where like, you know, it's all kind of under the hood world building, but have, having those answers ready makes your world feel so much more lived in and livable uh, as to like, well, why don't I know about this? Or why is this this way? Yeah. And, it, and, the, and the reasoning doesn't have to be, you know, five pages of history. No, the reasoning can be a paragraph that describes why is, you know, X like this. Or um, a short piece of fiction within your book or sometimes even an image can can get the job done yeah an image absolutely can mm-hmm. can get the job done um there's uh like i didn't really describe too in too much detail what happens to um the world of reverie if the void wins if like or in the wake of major destruction by the void in good strong hands i literally have an illustration one point in the book that's a picture it's a shot of this castle kind of on a little bit of a rise there's a wagon with some people walking to the castle it's on a particular landscape with mountains and there's trees and everything and then there's another image in the book that is that exact same shot of what that castle looks like in ruins oh nice yeah um and, th- and that tells the story is like, okay, this is what the world looks like. And this is where it's going to end up. If the characters don't, we did something almost exactly like that. We and did, we did that. Like- and I did that in two thirds of, of, of a page worth of illustrations. We had a, 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 an image of the planet that they came from when they were still on it. And it's like vibrant and light. And there's like all this neon and everything. And then in the section on the bad guys, there's another shot of the planet. And it's all like rusted and white and dead. Uh, 
because that's what it looks like now and and yeah. uh yeah like that's you're you're exactly right like that sort of you know it it sticks in your head a little bit more like this is this is what you don't want to have happen and that, yeah. for the record and anybody out there want to steal this idea that we're talking about here you can do this i did this on my kickstarter page i mean i i took the two uh, images and made them into a gif that faded from one to the other oh, and put that awesome. on the page so the people are scrolling really cool. people are scrolling down and they hit the page and it's like oh there's a castle and then boom, and it's in ruins that's over the course of like six or seven seconds that's really really <laughs> cool i love yeah. that i i personally as a player i love when my when the books and the games i pick up have a lot of world building and storytelling in them i i like all of that so i can get that fun inspiration um i i I haven't yet picked up a book that I feel like did it too much. Uh, <laughs> I I, ha- I just haven't. I mean, I own setting books like where it's just some setting stuff for a game that I also have or sometimes don't have. I, I like that a lot. Um, and it helps me as a GM come up with my own stuff. Most of the time, like I mentioned, I hardly ever play exactly how they say to play. Um, I will take my Legos and build what I want with them. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I, there, there are so many ways that you, you as a game designer can, can make that happen. And not just you personally as the person designing the game, but the artists that are working with you or the other writers that are working with you um, allow that process kind of in the same way you would do that collaborative storytelling at the table when you're GMing, allow the other people on your team to, to have a part in it too. I know, Craig, you've mentioned building entire games based on the work of an artist and, and, you know, nice. take that's take coming that inspiration, take <laughs> yeah. that inspiration where it comes. Boy, good stuff, everybody. Yeah. Ooh. This is a lot of fun. I, I, I want to go read some books now, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, Sean, where, where can we find you? Where do you have anything to plug or. Um, yeah. Uh, Nerdycity.com. Uh, is the best place we've got that uh, that'll take you to Rememorex, uh, RPG Nasty, Commandroids, the Patreon, um, all of that should be accessible. Just go to nerdycity.com. Um, Commandroids is, you know, it's in the final stages of layout right now. Um, and uh, it's going to be huge. It's all full color. Uh, got a bunch of different like crazy robot art. It's it's a lot of fun, uh, and, and uh, that should be coming out real soon. Awesome! <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at, at @joska or my stuff at wannabegames.com. And uh, I'm working on a game called Means of Magic. It will there will be news about it in about a month. <laughs> Kickstarter at some point after that. Uh, yeah. And I'm Craig Campbell. Um, you can find me at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter. Uh, the website is nerdburgergames.com and uh, stuff is available also at drivethroughrpg.com. Um, the, the game that I worked on that is built entirely off of a particular artist's work is called Secrets of the Vibrant Isle. The artist is Gemma Moratia. She's known as at Ashenwave on Twitter. So if you go look at her artwork, you'll see what I'm talking about. Really beautiful, kind of vibrant, deep uh, saturated colors, kind of, kind of wicked fantasy, not wicked, but like really cool looking kind of fantasy, really imaginative stuff. And I've been, I spent the last two, two and a half years, um, thinking at some point I'm going to figure out a game that, 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 that art fits. Um, 
And so I ultimately did that. Um, and then also NerdBurgerCon online is going to be happening in October 16th through 17th. Um, and there will be signups for that coming up um, in the not too distant future. And I'll make sure that, you know, I let everybody know in all the channels that I am. So follow me on Twitter and you can come and play some games with me and um, maybe with Jess mm -hmm. um, and some other folks too. Yeah. Exciting. Well, thank you again, Sean, for joining us and, and Thanks talking. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And everyone else, thank you for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Bye.